0: Well, good morning again. Welcome to St. Paul's Blur Street. For those of you joining us online, great to have you and a warm welcome, especially to anyone here. Maybe you're here for the first time or you're returning uh, after some time away. It's great to see you. Almost 35 years ago, the American film director Spike Lee had a critically acclaimed hit on his hand with his movie, Do the Right Thing. Controversial, when it was first released, the film explored how racial inequality drove some conflict in a predominantly African-American neighborhood uh, in Brooklyn on the hottest day of the summer. And the movie ends with two different quotes about the role violence should play in doing the right thing. There was a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., and an opposing one from Malcolm X. And it leaves the question unresolved. We're on week two of our teaching series, The Good Life, looking at four qualities we all want, qualities that shape a good life. Last week, we looked at wisdom, how to make good choices, at the first of the four cardinal virtues, wisdom, justice, temperance, fortitude. And today, we're looking at justice, how to do the right thing. Like wisdom, we want this quality for ourselves, for our children. We want to act justly, both for noble and for selfish reasons, right? Noble reasons, because most people know instinctively what is unjust. Not knowing is not really our problem. We'll get to our problem in a minute. We want to act justly. And then there's selfish reasons, right? We, we feel good about ourselves when we donate to help the poor. And it's super embarrassing when the teacher at school calls you to tell you that your child's become the class bully. I have no first-hand experience of this, but I've heard it's embarrassing. As I said last week, the Christian faith does not have a monopoly on these qualities, wisdom or justice. But we are unpacking how learning how to follow Jesus shapes that quality in a unique way, offering us, whether you're spiritually searching or a long-time disciple, a life that won't be easy, it won't be free of suffering, but it can be good. So how do we grow in our ability to do the right thing? Let's start by understanding how the Bible speaks of justice and then look at the problem which is motivation. There are two main words used in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible that records God's interaction with the Israelite nation uh, before the life of Jesus. There's two words. And the first word in Hebrew for justice is misfat. It's literally translated as doing what is equitable. And misfat occurs over 200 times And it describes taking care of four groups, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, the four groups uh, in a a pre-modern agrarian society that would have had no social power. And and we could expand that quartet today to include the refugee, uh, the migrant worker, the homeless, the disabled, uh, many single parents. And what's extraordinary is God is continually described as caring for these groups. In fact, even personally identifying with them. And I think it's hard for us to understand just how radical this understanding of justice was in the ancient world. Sri Lankan scholar Vinoth Ramachandra describes how in virtually all ancient cultures, the power of the gods... The power of the gods was always channeled through the elites of society, right? Like the kings, the military leaders, all high-ranking males. Not the poor, not the destitute. And from the earliest times, the god of the Bible stood out from the gods of other religions as a god of justice, as a god on the side of the powerless. So on one level, justice, doing the right thing, is caring for the poor, is caring for the powerless. But the biblical understanding of justice goes further than this. The second Hebrew word, second Hebrew word that can be translated as being just, is zedekah, which means a life of right relationships. Being right with God, and therefore wanting to conduct our relationships with work colleagues, with friends, with family, uh, with fairness, with with generosity. And these two words, misfat and zedekah. don't worry, I'm not gonna test you on them at coffee hour, they sum up together, I think an extraordinarily refreshing, honest view that the Bible has of justice. You aim for zedekah right? Being in right relationship with God and our neighbors. And then we still have the safety net of misfat, cleaning up the mess after we failed. But I actually don't think I need to convince uh, many of you of this. The issue is not that we don't know that doing the right thing means caring for the poor and the outcast. I don't think that's the problem. The problem Is motivation how does it become a quality in our life especially when it's hard because it's pretty easy to do the right thing when it doesn't cost you much well the biblical understanding of justice of being in right relationships and then cleaning up the mess it always involves self-denial sacrifice our reading from the ancient prophet Isaiah in the seventh century BCE The Israelites had been fasting for the annual Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would enter the temple in Jerusalem and offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. But God was not impressed. Yet, on your day of fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? God sees economically comfortable people, most but not all of us here in Toronto, going without for a day or two, but not willing to pay their workers properly. By publicly fasting, the people were showing superficial devotion to God, but the hypocrisy of their daily lives was in full view. The kind of fasting that God is primarily interested in is certainly not the fashionable detox of our culture right? Which is actually all about us. And it's not even the fasting of a day or two to remind us to depend on God, which is, of course, still a good thing. The kind of fasting that God is primarily interested in is the self-denial needed to do the right thing. To give to the poor and to the refugee in a way that will make a meaningful difference in their lives uh, to make that ethical decision at the office that's going to require some sacrifice on our part. It will not be easy. It will not be cost. It will be costly. And if it doesn't cost you something in time or reputation or advancement. It's probably not justice in the way that the Bible understands it. And this is where we come to the issue of motivation. Knowing what the right thing to do is in the face of pain or corruption is not really our problem. The issue is, most of the time, we don't do it. Myself included. Or when we do it, it's, it's motivated by selfish reasons. It's actually still primarily about us. And as our Western culture continues to fragment, uh, we can no longer effectively appeal to any agreed upon moral standard that requires action from people. And guilt has never worked as a long-term motivator. Ask any parent, they will tell you. And so what we tend to do now in our culture, and it's not a bad thing, but what we tend to do is we now appeal to sentimentality. We appeal to love, right? Um, You know, we try to pull on people's heartstrings with stories and pictures of those who are suffering. It's not a bad thing. The problem is, I don't think it was sentimentality. I don't think it was love or nice pictures of Hutus and Tutsis eating together that stopped the Rwandan genocide. And I really don't think pictures of suffering Ukrainian children is going to stop Putin. The primary motivation the Bible offers us is the experience of God's great gift of grace. You see, at the heart of the Christian hope, is a God who keeps on reaching out to us, even when we reject God's dreams for our lives, basically every day. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? God's love, God's forgiveness, hope for the future, and eternal perspective on any present troubles we face. Knowing that we couldn't earn any of these things ourselves, it can humble us and chip away at any superiority that we might feel towards the poor, right? We wouldn't say it out loud, but we feel it inside. Or any complacency that's built up in the face of corruption. Because if we've been truly humbled by the knowledge that Jesus had to die for us on the cross, then we're going to be willing to sacrifice our material comfort, sacrifice our reputation. Because that's what God did for us. If we're not willing to sacrifice our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own safety to help those who suffer, then we haven't yet experienced the grace of God in our lives. Grace is what can shape us to live justly. That's the motivator that morality, guilt, and sentimentality will never be. God sacrificed. God fasted from comfort and pleasure as Jesus died on the cross, so that justice could shape our lives and our world. The prophet Isaiah put it like this, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? In order to be motivated to actually do the right thing, for our children to be motivated to act justly, we need to encounter the God of grace. We need to be amazed again and again with God's sacrifice on the cross. And I promise you, it will shape your life. Some people, it will will shape their life in extraordinary ways. Janani Luam was the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda from 1974 to 1977, and he was a leading voice protesting against the murderous abuses of the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. And on February 16, 1977, Luam was arrested along with two cabinet ministers accused of treason, and a few days later, he was paraded at an Idi Amin rally and required to read a public confession. The next day, Radio Uganda announced that the three of them had died in a tragic car accident. And when the bodies of the three men were released to their families, Archbishop Luam's body was found to be riddled with bullet holes, one through the mouth. Many of the bishops that Tim and I had the privilege of meeting this summer at the Lambeth Conference serve in the middle of war zones. With several of the South Sudanese bishops, for example, having machete scars clearly on their heads and their hands. And most of the Anglican bishops we met, from Bangladesh to Haiti, they're the most educated people in their countries. They could immigrate. They could leave with their children. And they stay to do the right thing, to live lives of justice-seeking. It's extraordinary. And their hearts are being shaped by God's grace. But for most of us, for most of us here in Toronto, we're not going to be faced with murderous dictators or catastrophic flooding like in Pakistan. The good life that can be ours, it looks different. Writer Tish Warren puts it like this in an article called Everyone Wants a Revolution But No One Wants to Do the Dishes. She writes this, I want to live radically for Jesus and for justice and be part of him changing the world. But I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart because I need the courage to face an ordinary day, an afternoon where I'm probably gonna snap at my two-year-old Or be impatient with my husband after his stressful day downtown. I need the grace to know that even when I've done nothing powerful, or bold, or even interesting, God still notices me. Maybe at the end of my days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, or planning a sacrificial budget on a Saturday morning, that'll be the revolution through which God makes all things new. For someone learning how to follow Jesus, the quality of justice of doing the right thing is going to be uniquely motivated by the grace of God, which is why gathering like this week in and week out to be reminded through the confession of how much we need God's grace And then in the bread and wine, to be fed with the grace of God. This is so important. If you want to stand up to murderous dictators or handle the morning meltdown with your four-year-old. Jesus fasted and sacrificed so we can lavish love and care on others. Jesus faced injustice so that we can be just. Thanks be to God. Amen.